All right, if you want to make your way back and grab a seat. While you do that, uh, if you've got a Bible with you, whether in print or on your phone, go ahead and open it up. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which means we're going to do the last three verses of chapter 4, 14, 15, and 16, and then we're actually going to work our way through the first 10 chapters, or the first 10 chapters. I'm going to speed way up. The first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 5, and all of this today deals with a comparison that the author of Hebrews is making between Jesus and the high priest within Jewish community and religious life. And as he has done throughout the book of Hebrews, the emphasis here is that Jesus is better. He's greater than the high priest. So that's where we're headed. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to celebrate baptism alongside three individuals uh, in this service. Lord, six individuals total. Uh, God, we just celebrate the way it is that you're moving in people's lives. Uh, We thank you for drawing people to faith and for giving them a desire to be obedient and brave to make that confession uh, in front of the church. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would come alongside these individuals, um, share with them what it is to follow you, what it is to love you, share with them the struggles and the trials and the joys in doing that, Lord, that uh, God, that with three brothers and sisters here and also alongside our whole congregation, God, that we would take seriously the call it is to live um, church life with each other. God, I pray that you would uh, bring to life your word this morning. Lord, would your Holy Spirit empower these, uh, these words from the book of Hebrews implant them into our hearts, Lord. Help us to view them correctly, to see Jesus correctly, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit to live obediently and in accordance with what we see here this morning. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You sit down to watch the news one night, or you pick up a newspaper, or maybe you're scrolling through the feed on one of your social media channels, and you see that the prominent popular pastor that you've listened to via podcast over the last five years is on the headlines of the New York Times because he's embroiled in a sexual misconduct scandal. A prominent megachurch pastor inflames half of the Christian world and 80% of the watching world with a theological perspective or a practical scriptural application that people may or may not agree with. A popular Christian author or speaker or artist issues a statement saying that they no longer believe and are walking away from the faith. A pastor across town that you've heard of is stepping out of their ministry position. You're not sure if it's because they've been forced out or because they're voluntarily stepping out of it. You've just heard that it's because of a substance addiction and that he was embezzling money. Your pastor within the life of a church that you're attending, decides or uh, steers the church in a direction that you don't particularly like. 
And at the news of any of those, you hear that some within the local church or some within the larger church, and certainly those outside the church, are asking questions about how Christianity can possibly be true if that thing happened. Those are not hypothetical events. In fact, I didn't have to think very hard to come up with those examples. The, the hard work I did have to do was to actually make them vague enough so that you wouldn't attach them to the person or the church that most recently experienced them. We see this sort of thing play itself out at an alarming rate today. I want you to hold that in your minds as we work through this passage of Scripture. And we're going to come back to it at the end because I think what we're going to see today in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through chapter 5, verse 10, has something to say about those instances and our responses to them. Let me give you kind of the bottom line of what we're going to see this morning, and then we'll start to work through it. And the bottom line is this. Sisters and brothers in Christ, cast your confidence correctly. Cast your confidence correctly. We're going to work with Hebrews 4.14 to Hebrews 5.10 a little bit differently than we normally do. Normally, we would look at the whole, read the whole thing, hear what it says, and then kind of work through it in pieces. I actually think it makes a little bit more sense and is a little bit clearer this morning if we work in pieces first, and then we'll put the whole together. And so I want to start in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. What you're going to see as we work our way through this is a running comparison contrast between the Jewish high priest and Jesus Christ as the great high priest. We don't get an exhaustive list of what it is that qualifies the high priest to be the high priest, but we do get three things. The author of Hebrews wants to draw out three comparisons between a Jewish high priest and Jesus Christ. And so those are given to us in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The first one comes in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Aspect of the high priest number one is that he is a part of the community. He's a part of the community. He's a member of humanity. He's one who's acting in place of people before the Lord. He's one of the people who goes on behalf of the people. The high priest was not of some different or special order of being. He's not an angel, not some other celestial being. He's not a special class of human. The high priest was just old Johnny who lived like three or four tenths down. He's one of the people. In fact, his being able to identify and be a shared part of the community was essential to his priestly ministry. He had to be linked to God, and so we'll see that in a moment, because he was going to be a mediator between humanity and God. But what's brought to light first is that he had to be linked to humanity. The high priest is one of the people who's acting in place of the people. He's part of the community. Verses 2 and 3 give us the second aspect of the high priest. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. He's a person of compassion. We're told that the high priest can deal gently because he understands what it is to be human. 
One of the best definitions I've ever heard for gentle is that to be gentle is to exercise power under control. It's to have patient restraint. In fact, dealing gently here in this particular text means that the the high priest was not prone to anger, but he also was not prone to apathy. So when one of the members of the Jewish community would come before him with an offering to be made because they had committed some sort of sin, their sin did not move him to apathy. Their sin also did not move him to anger. Why? Because he's human. The text tells us that before he would offer a sin on anyone else's behalf, he actually had to go in and offer a sacrifice for his own sin. His own brokenness is ever before him. When he went to make sacrifices on behalf of the people, he had to cleanse himself first. In fact, there were a set of prayers and offerings that the high priest made before he offered anything on behalf of anyone else. Those prayers, those sacrifices served as a constant reminder that he had the same flesh of those that he was mediating for before the Lord. And that should have created within him not just an awareness of sin, it should have created within him a compassion for the people that he ministered before. I remember when I was in high school, uh, in the fine arts wing of Liberty High School, there were a number of different practice rooms. And um, I was in choir, and so at times we would get sent out by sections into these different practice rooms. One of them had two pianos in it. And if the pianos were in tune well, you could stand at one, like plunk down on a middle C, and it would softly resonate the same note on the other piano in the room. That's called sympathetic resonance. That when they're in tune properly, you hit one note on one piano, it will gently and softly vibrate and create a sound out of that same note on the other piano. That is the picture that we get of the high priest. Someone comes before them, needs a sacrifice to be offered for their sin, or they go in on the one day a year where they would go and offer a sacrifice for all the sins of all the people. They stood there and they understood because of their humanity why it was that they were needing to make an offering and give a sacrifice. There was a sympathetic resonance. That's piece number two. Verse four in chapter five gives us number three. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest had a particular calling, a particular calling. You didn't get to put your name forward and be voted on to be high priest. This wasn't like the selection of the Pope, where a group of people disappeared into a building for a few days, and everyone watched and waited for the smoke to change color to find out who had been selected. The high priest was selected by divine appointment. If you want kind of a full look at that, the best place to look is in Numbers chapter 16. You can jot that down if you're interested. Numbers 16 gives the account of a man named Korah. In the middle of that passage, in verse 5, we're told this, that tomorrow morning the Lord will reveal who belongs to him, who is set apart, and the one he will let come near him. He will let the one he chooses come near The rest of that account is the story of a man, Korah, who ends up perishing with 250 of his followers because he tries to take that appointment for himself and in so doing, tries to offer an unauthorized sacrifice. It's divine appointment. That's the way you became 
high priest. King Saul ultimately and finally loses his role as king over Israel because he tries to make an offering in the place of Samuel, who was the divinely appointed high priest. The calling that a high priest had gave a sense of reverence to his role and to his position, but it did not fundamentally change the fact that he was part of the community and he was to be a person of compassion who understood the sinfulness and the brokenness of those he sacrificed on behalf of. There are the three realities that the author of Hebrews brings out about a high priest. A member of the community, a part of the community, a person of compassion, and a particular calling. Surrounding those four verses in this section are a comparison contrast of Jesus in those same capacities. And so what I want to do is now zoom out and see the way that the author of Hebrews displays Jesus as better in each of those categories. We're not going to get these in the same order because I want to go in the order of the text, but we're going to see each of the same three qualities. The first comes in verse four, or verse 15 of chapter 4. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. Jesus, has, or Jesus is a superior person of compassion. He doesn't have to imagine what we feel like. He's felt it to the absolute limit. His body, his emotions, his mind, they were all real. And they had all the inherent limits of humanity, but none of the sin. He didn't have to imagine what it was like to deal with fatigue, sickness, with a mind that gets tired and has trouble focusing. Imagine being the eternal, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe, and then you've got to learn how to walk. Hebrews chapter 1 told us that Jesus was the creator of all things. He created human beings to walk, and now he's got to learn how to do it himself. Learning how to talk. He knows the failings and the limits of our physical bodies because he was eternally pre-existent without one, but then was shackled by one for 33 years. All the limitations of being a human being in a fallen world, and yet none of the sin. He knows the depths of temptation because he resisted it perfectly to its very end. We're told in verse 15 that we have a high priest who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That doesn't mean that Jesus faced all of the particular temptations that we would face today in modern society. He didn't have to deal with modern materialism. He didn't have to deal with social media and the internet. He didn't have to deal with some of the things that we deal with in modern society. But he was tempted in every form and had faced temptation of every kind like we do. It means he faced the fullness of temptation to his pride, to his self-sufficiency, both of those were attacked specifically by Satan during Jesus' testing in the wilderness. He faced temptation with his eyes, with the control of his emotions. And he faced those temptations beyond any point any of us has ever felt, and he never gave in to sin. I'm going to read an extended quote from C.S. Lewis. It comes from the book Mere Christianity. Normally I would put this up on the screen, but it's kind of lengthy and it wouldn't have fit. And so if you're interested in... Uh, having this because it strikes a chord with you, you can let me know that and I'll send it to you. But C.S. Lewis says this, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by trying to fight against it, not by giving in. 
You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like after an hour. That is why bad people, that's in italics, in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation truly means. A superior person of compassion. Go back to our two pianos. When your flesh is pricked by its weakness... That doesn't just resonate a little with Christ. It rattles him down to his very bones. There isn't a note that your flesh could play that he hasn't already felt. There isn't a song or a melody that your weakness or brokenness can conjure up that he has not only felt, but mastered. And so he's able, in a superior way, to deal gently with us. Not in anger, but also not in apathy with a patient kind of restraint that exercises power under control. And we get no better picture of that than when Jesus, Almighty God incarnate, hangs on the cross. A superior person of compassion. Verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews chapter 5 say this. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father, also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll do a deep dive on Melchizedek in a few weeks when we get to Hebrews chapter 7. But for now, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say in these two verses is that Jesus received a calling in the same way that any priest would. He did not elevate himself to this place all on his own. And the allusion to Melchizedek is to say that not only did Jesus receive a particular calling, a superior calling, he also received a calling to a superior priesthood, an eternal one, an everlasting one. This two-verse section is the Hebrews chapter 5 version of Philippians 2 that tells us that the attitude of Jesus was such that though being... In nature, God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he humbled himself, and because of that, God exalted him to a higher place. He's got a superior and particular calling to a superior priesthood. Verses 7, 8, and 9 give us the last comparison point. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Just like the rest of humanity, Jesus learned obedience to the Father. He's a superior part of the community. 
like us in the sense that not only has he suffered and been tempted and yet resisted that temptation, but also like us because he had to learn what it meant to be obedient. He cried out in prayer with tears. Think of him in the garden before being arrested. In the obedience and the suffering, we're told, he was perfected. And that doesn't mean that he went from disobedience to obedience and was perfected in that way. It doesn't mean that his divine nature was somehow imperfect and became perfect. It means that by his crying out, his loud cries, his suffering, he was made perfectly qualified to stand in our place as the high priest. He became the perfect part of the community to go before God on humanity's behalf. The perfect person to go on behalf of the people, a superior part of the community. Let me point out two items really quickly in this three-verse section that might cause you to ask a question. What did learning obedience entail? What do you mean Jesus had to learn to be obedient? That's a good question. We're told that he cried out to God in reverence, that there were prayers and tears and suffering. Jesus, when he took on humanity, took on all the inherent limitations of humanity. And so even though he's God from all eternity past and he will be God into all eternity future, during those 33 years on earth, he laid aside some of his divinity, subjected it to the will of the Father, and had to learn like a human how to trust. That's why we see Jesus in the garden the night before he's arrested praying, take this cup from me. My flesh, my inherent human sensibilities wants nothing to do with the cross that lays before me. But look at the perfect obedience. But if that's the means, your will, not mine. He's learning obedience there with loud cries and with tears. As a quick aside, we should not think that our learning obedience would entail anything different. That doesn't mean that we suffer all the time. That doesn't mean that all of our seasons of life will be marked by tears and loud cries, but it does mean that at certain points in life, learning obedience will involve suffering. And we should expect that. And we should turn to the Lord in prayer. Question number two. What does verse 9 mean when it says, after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him? What does that statement refer to? Well, primarily, we place our first act of obedience to Christ by recognizing our need for a Savior and seeing Him as the only way, truth, and life, the only means by which we come to the Father. And so, the first act of obedience cultivated inside of us is actually not an act of outward obedience. It's an act of recognizing that we need someone obedient in our place. And we put our faith in Jesus Christ, receive the grace of God, and we are saved from our sin. And then we join with Christ in a lifetime of persistent growth in obedience to Him. We're saved by that grace. That grace also catapults us into a lifetime of persistent obedience. Now let's read the whole passage. Hebrews 4.14 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father, also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and he was declared by God a high priest forever, or he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is better than the high priest. Superior in his calling, superior as his place in the community, and superior in his compassion. And because of that, there are a couple little nuggets tucked in here for the church, both the church that received this initially and also the church today. The first two are realities that we should cherish. Number one, Jesus passed through the heavens, not just the veil. The high priest would go through this curtain that hung on the outside of the Holy of Holies and separated the holiest place from the rest of the temple. When it was time to offer a sacrifice there before the altar of the Lord, one time a year, the high priest would don these very particular robes. They had bells on the bottoms, actually. And he would go behind that curtain and he would offer a sacrifice. And he would stay there only as long as he needed to to offer the sacrifice. And then he would come out. And the bells were down there on the bottom of his garment because if he went in in an unclean manner, he might drop dead. And when the bells stopped jingling, that meant somebody needed to pull him out by a rope. Jesus, on the other hand, tore that veil in two on the cross. Passed not through that curtain on the way to the altar, but passed through the heavens on the way to the throne, and he sat down there, and now his blood declares... I'm bringing you here with me. I'm not just going to enter into the presence of God on my own, on your behalf. I'm going to enter in on your behalf and bring you into the presence of God with me. He didn't just pass through the veil on our behalf. He passed through the heavens. And now he's seated there at the right hand of God before the throne, interceding on our behalf. And brothers and sisters, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and received God's grace, you stand in him, right there. Jesus is better, yes? Amen. The second reality that is tucked inside of this is that he's not leaving that place. The high priest would go in behind the veil, he would stay there as long as he needed to, and then he would come out for his own safety. Jesus Christ, sinless, spotless, righteous, passed through the heavens, into the very throne room of God, sat down at God's right hand, and he's not leaving that place. 
He will sit there on our behalf, interceding for us, His blood pleading our innocence, and we never have to worry if He's going to abandon that post and therefore abandon us. He will be there for all of eternity. That brings us to verse 16. What are we told to do? Approach the throne of grace with boldness. Boldness. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. What are the implications or the applications for today? First of all, go before the throne boldly. You've got a high priest, a great high priest who stands there on your behalf. Go to him boldly. Let me tell you the two times you should go before the throne of God timidly. Number one, if Jesus weren't there. If Jesus weren't there, you could go before the throne of God with all kinds of timidity because what would be there to cover you? But good news, he's never not going to be there. He's always going to be seated there at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf. And so brothers and sisters, go boldly and ask for mercy. Mercy for the things in the past that you think might disqualify you from standing in the presence of God. Let me tell you, they absolutely disqualify you. But the presence of Jesus Christ has washed that clean and you go before the throne boldly asking for mercy. You also go before the throne boldly asking for grace. Mercy for what's happened. Grace for what's to come. You don't know how to face that next season of life. You don't know how you might possibly stand up in the face of that particular temptation. Go boldly and ask for grace. Jesus is standing there on your behalf. Your great high priest. He's never not going to be there. Go boldly. Now you would go timidly if he weren't there, right? but he is. Let me give you the second reason you would ever go timidly before the throne of grace, and that's if you've never received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. If that were the case, you would be forced to stand there before the throne of God and cling to whatever it is that you thought was going to save you in that moment. Your own goodness. It'd be a very timid moment to stand before a holy and a righteous God and think that your own goodness was going to save you. You would cower in fear in recognition of the fact that you've fallen woefully short. It'd be an incredibly timid moment to go before the Lord and stand there thinking that your own inherent worthiness or that your own striving in life. It would be an incredibly timid moment to stand before the Lord and think that the size of your bank account or the accomplishments of your career or the relationships that you had acquired were going to be the thing that would help you to be righteous there before the Lord. You should be filled with timidity because all of those would come up short. If you're sitting here this morning thinking to yourself that one of those is ultimately going to save you, you face a timid, timid moment at the end of all things. I cannot plead with you enough to look instead to your great high priest, Jesus Christ. Receive his grace by faith and know that now you can go boldly to the throne. We're also told in verse 14 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. 
hold fast. Approach the throne of grace boldly, but also hold fast to your confession. That's not a new encouragement. That's been given to us all throughout Hebrews at this point. Consider Jesus. Don't drift. Cling to your faith. Hold fast. It's given new and deeper roots now. Why is it that you can hold fast to your confession? Because Jesus Christ stands before the throne. Not because your grip strength is great, but because Jesus Christ is present there on your behalf. Hold fast. Hold fast. Your faith tomorrow is evidence of your faith today. Hold fast knowing that He is there at the throne holding you fast. The very word confession, though, gives us the third application, and that's hold forth. To confess, confess something involves being vocal. Part of what the author of Hebrews was doing was calling this small, hassled, persecuted, anxious church to continue confessing the name of Jesus despite their persecution. The same is true today. You hold fast internally to that confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the grace that saved you, but you also hold forth that confession so that the world might see it. Unafraid of what might befall you for making that confession because you've got a great high priest in the heavenlies who's never going to abandon you. Hold fast, but also hold forth. Those who are being baptized today, Hold fast to the confession that led you to stand up in front of a congregation and make a public declaration of your faith, but also hold forth that confession so that the rest of the world might cherish and love the name of Jesus in the same way that you do. Let's go back to where we started this morning. Cast your confidence correctly. pastor that you really like listening to runs into a moral scandal. That artist that you've enjoyed listening to that professed Christ has now renounced that profession of faith. And something inside of you starts to wonder, how is it possible that Christianity could be real if I watch and see these kinds of things happening to these sorts of people? I'll tell you why that happens inside of us. It's because to some degree, we've put our confidence in Christ onto someone else in some capacity. We think that the fact that that person preaches the way they preach, sings the way they sing, writes the way they write, that we can be strong and secure in our Christian faith because that person is the one who told me about it or the one who showed it to me or the one who helps me feel the reality of my faith when I listen to their music or whatever the case might be. And when they get shaken to their core, all of a sudden we're a little shaken. We've miscast our confidence in that moment. We see this happen all the time today. In fact, regrettably, it happens with startling frequency today. 
someone who is in a prominent position within Christianity has some sort of stumble from that position and people are left questioning the veracity of the Christian faith. Look, the truth of Christianity never hinged on that person. It was never that person who was going to stand in between you and a holy God and usher you by their righteousness into God's presence for all of eternity. It never was. And so, we've got to cast our confidence correctly. We put it squarely upon our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who passed through the heavenlies on our behalf and stands before the throne of God pleading our righteousness. We put all of our confidence there and none of it anywhere else. Now that doesn't mean when those individuals fall or they have their stumbles that we shouldn't be grieved for that. It can absolutely grieve us. But it should also point us to the reality that we've got a perfect high priest that stands in our place. That our mediator is not subject to the potential to fall. He's sinless and faultless and perfect. That even though we might see human beings shaken in their faith, Jesus Christ is resolute and stands certainly on our behalf. Let me ask you some diagnostic questions. How can you know if maybe something like this is happening inside your own heart? What would happen to your faith in Jesus? If you found out that your pastor, your favorite author, your preferred preacher, or maybe even the person that first told you about Jesus and led you to the Lord's grace? What would happen to your faith if you found out that that individual was a total sham? What happens to your desire to go to church when you know that fill-in-the-blank person isn't the one preaching? You show up because of the preacher or do you show up because of the one preached? Is your confidence in the ongoing and the future progress of the Big C Church, both in the world and in this nation, based upon the person leading the church or the one who died to create it? Is your confidence in the progress of the Big C Church in a person who might advocate for the church in a political sense, or is it in the one who is the advocate for the church in an eternal sense? Are you more captivated by the name of the person proclaiming Christianity or are you more captivated by the name above all names that is being proclaimed? Is your confidence in the ones who stand before men or the one who stands before the throne? My own life at various times has bumped into instances where a person who was incredibly influential in my own spiritual walk had their brokenness and their sin and their humanity put on full display. Pulpits make very wonderful places to hide. But at a certain point, you've got to step out from behind that pulpit. That man, that woman, that person steps out from their the safety of their place of influence, and their humanity is on display. You see their brokenness, and you see their sin, and it should not 
shake your faith in Jesus Christ. It should point you to the perfection of Jesus Christ. You cast your confidence correctly. Speaking less in a, in a big C kind of global church sense and more in a sense right here to this church family, at some point, whether it be me or someone else on our church staff, we will disappoint you deeply. It might be because you find out about some particular attitude or behavior that's going on in our life. It might be because of a post on social media. It might be because of a decision within the life of our church, but it will disappoint you deeply. I hope in that moment, as you turn in prayer to the Lord, that your prayers are not as one who comes before the Lord trying to figure out how it is that they could possibly have faith any longer, but instead your prayers are, Jesus, thank you that you are perfect, and that you stand before the throne on my behalf, and that though every human being on the face of this planet might one day disappoint me, you never will because you're better. The disappointment that happens from someone here on our staff might not be of a variety that means we've got to step away from our ministry position, but it could hurt you in the same manner. You've got pastors and staff members here who are part of the community. We share your humanity. We want to live lives that can say confidently to our congregation, follow us as we follow Christ. But more than that, we want to live lives that say, you follow Christ. You cast your confidence upon him fully and we will do the same and we'll just figure it out together day by day. Amen? Amen. Cast your confidence correctly. One of my very favorite hymns is the hymn, Before the Throne of God. The reason I love it so much is because it gives us a strong lyrical reminder that our confidence is in one thing and in one thing only, and it's in our great high priest. This is what it says. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. There's not a person on earth that you could sing that about, but you don't need to because you sing that about your great high priest who stands at the right hand of God on your behalf. Let's stand up and sing that together.